Dr. Mike Williams. We're very honored today to have Dr. Mike Williams with us. Um, Harding's a special place for many in here. Um, I was just thinking of it this week when I came across the most creepy, um, weird story about artificial intelligence, and the person I had to share it with was Pat Garner at Harding. And I thought, it's a little odd that I'm sending him, and we had a discussion about it, 35 years after I first met him. And I don't know many universities that have stories like that. But I first met Dr. Williams when he was admissions director, and he sent me and many in here um, acceptance letters. So he's responsible for Jill and Amber and many in here, Christy Banks and my wife Wendy, for going to Harding. He's also responsible for J.J. Childers going to Harding, so he didn't hit 100%. But, <laughs> but he, he was, he was a, a very good admissions officer, spent 28 years with the university. He spent seven years as a president of Faulkner University. And then uh, um, recently, he returned to Harding as the sixth president of Harding University. We're very honored to have you today. Thank you, Dr. Mike Williams. Thank you, Craig. It's really good to be here. It's amazing how you can walk into an assembly like this, and it doesn't take long for us to connect the dots and really recognize that uh, we are all connected, uh, certainly through the blood of Jesus Christ, but through a lot of relationships and friendships. I wish my wife was here, Lisa. Uh, she is in West Virginia. Our, uh, her mother had surgery this past week, and I'm wish she was here because it's just me and the dog at the house and if you have a dog you understand that all right so uh, just honored to, to be here do you all have senior Sunday here where you recognize the senior it's, it's like required if you're going to be a church of Christ you have senior Sunday you bring the seniors up at the after high school graduation you give them a bible and a blessing from the church I still have my bible from the Norville Park Church of Christ Zanesville Ohio and a blessing. And uh, I love Senior Sunday. I mean, I love going up there. It's just the significance of the moment to see the seniors stand before the church and to recognize what's about to happen in their lives and for us to pray over them. It's just a, a moving moment. The older I get, the more I cry. I don't even have to know the seniors. I'm back here blubbering like crazy. Um, but I can tell you the last few years, uh, Senior Sunday hits me in a mixed kind of way. I, I'm still really excited about what's ahead for these seniors that stand in front of us and, and just the symbolism of praying over them is really significant. But, you know, the mixed emotion is that our tribes, like every other religious tribe in America, symbolically, that's the last Sunday for about seven of every ten. And so Senior Sundays is more of a mixed uh, experience for me as I think about it. And that's got the people of God in every religious tribe in America scrambling. Ministers are preparing sermons. Lectureships and conferences are dedicated to the exodus. Publications are riddled with different articles. And with the pandemic uh, coming on, most of the researchers forecasted it wasn't just the kids who were leaving but a third of the adults would leave too. And they were right. And the research is when they asked the people walking out the door why. Uh, the main reason is that the church is no longer relevant in their opinion. And so they leave. You know, the movement that says, I can still be spiritually connected to God, 
but you can keep the church. Um, like I said, churches of every stripe are wrestling with this. And you know what the baby boomer response is to all of this? The baby boomer response, of which I'm a part of, um, it's the same response we give to everything. We're going to solve every issue with 60 minutes on Sunday. Now, I'm not against a really robust experience. Thank you to the praise team. Thank you for your comments around the table. It's meaningful. It shepherded us in a time of worship of the king. Chapel at Harding's very modern and contemporary. We want to connect with an 18 to 22-year-old crowd. But it's not a speed bump. It is not a speed bump to slow them down on the exodus. It doesn't answer the question of relevancy. It's got to be more than that. I read a publication recently that was just dedicated to this mass exodus. And, uh, and I believed in every uh, article within this publication. One talked about worship and assembly. One talked about Christian community, building a connection, making it relational. Another article uh, was about doctrine. I agreed with the whole thing. But one of the things that I thought was really glowingly absent was the church's impact on the world. That most of our analysis is very insular. We just kind of look amongst us. But we really rarely talk about our impact on the world. A conversation I've had recurring really for decades now as I walk beside college students, uh, especially students who attend a Christian university, you know what typically their number one goal is? They either want to start or be engaged in a meaningful nonprofit. They're compelled by the brokenness of the world and they want to do something about it. And so they want to engage in a nonprofit. Why would a Christian want to start a nonprofit? Now, I have nothing against nonprofits. I just moved back to Searcy from Montgomery, Alabama, where I was the campaign chair of the United Way campaign in Montgomery, Alabama. And we raised $4 million for good, holy work. I love the work of nonprofits. I'm not against any nonprofit. But why would a Christian? It's because they no longer view the church as God's redemptive force in the world. They say, hey, if we're going to reach out to brokenness, the best avenue to reach out for brokenness is a nonprofit. That kind of grabs me by the face mask and really makes me really reflect on this question. Are we relevant? If the church is going to reflect the teachings of Jesus Christ, we have to both be internally focused, but also very externally focused. And when we read the New Testament, it chronicles the life of Jesus. It certainly uh, articulates that time he spent with the twelve and preparing them for a time when he would be gone. But most of the Gospels really is about Jesus connecting with this broader community of people. Has the church become a building? Has the church become an event? Has the church become a place?
Is it no longer a movement? Is it no longer a revolution? The church is supposed to be the proof of the gospel. There's a familiar text that we've read a lot, John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Now, our default interpretation of that has been if we love each other in this room. But you know, it captures nobody's attention when I love my wife. It doesn't startle anybody's imagination if I say, you know, I love my sons and I love my daughter-in-law. That doesn't signal anything. The Taliban, gangs, they do that. The love that's talked about in John 13 is really one that causes a stir because the love that captured the attention of the first century uh, group was the love extended to a Samaritan woman. It was the invitation to a tax collector. And it was the touch. It was the touch of a leper. The love that Jesus was referring to was not care groups, prayer ministry, card showers. We remember he used to do card showers. That has nothing to do with that. That doesn't capture anybody. It was a reckless, unconstrained tidal wave of love, mercy, and compassion. I think it's intriguing to look at the impact of the first century church. You know, the New Testament just gives us a little window into about five decades of this movement. Uh, and it's, you know, the information sparse. So sometimes historians kind of help weigh in and say, give us a little bit more context of what's happening in first century Israel, first century Roman culture. Um, Dr. James Kennedy is a scholar and he wrote this. He said, life was expendable prior to Christianity's influence. Abandonment was commonplace. It was common for infirmed babies or unwanted little ones to be taken out into the forest uh, to starve. They often abandoned female babies because they were inferior, what they believed was inferior. That's hard for me to grasp because at least I have an autistic son. And so in first century culture, it was allowed by law that that might be just a lot easier. And in fact, they called it exposure. That's a nice benign thing to call it. It's exposure. So rather than walk beside Quinn and recognize that he is a blessing of God, it's just easier to take him outside the city. First century culture was gladiator contests, sexual promiscuity, the marginalization of women. It was barbaric by any definition. And yet this small little band of Christians, they had a dramatically different worldview. They cared about the sick. They cared about the disabled. 
They cared about the elderly and they cared about the marginalized. It was Christians prompted by their faith that started the first hospitals. It was Christians motivated by the teachings of Jesus Christ that really started orphanages. The influence of the early church elevated the value of women. They had this good Samaritan ethic that propelled them to charity and love. And their influence even impacted the court system and standards of justice. In essence, this little band of revolutionaries, they changed the Roman Empire. The growth of Christian thought and practice was the the catalyst for one of the most important reforms in the moral history of mankind. I think it's also significant to think about this, uh, just some of the growth of the early church. And to think about some of the demographic, you know, uh, it's believed that the world's population during the first century was about 200 million. Now, that's a lot of people, but perspective is that there's about 330 million in the United States of America. So 200 million is a lot of people, but it's not what we think of as the world's population today. So what do we know from the Bible about this little movement? numbers not a whole lot we know that there was 12 disciples we know that in Luke chapter 10 there was about 70 that were sent out Uh, we know that in the day of Pentecost there was about 3,000 that gave their lives to Jesus Christ that's it that's really all the demographical information that we have about this early movement some historians believe that there were only about a hundred churches in AD 100. Dr. Rodney Stark is a scholar from Baylor and he's done a lot of research in this area and he his research would suggest that there are about 40,000 Christians in AD 150. That by AD 200 it's about 218,000 according to his calculation and by AD 250 there's 1.2 million believers in Jesus Christ and by the end of the third century the Roman Emperor Emperor Constantine. Regardless of what you think about him, he ended the practice of exposure and converted to Christianity. This barbaric, pagan culture completely transformed by Christians. From Constantine on, we see Christians making powerful impacts in the world. The abolition of slavery in Britain was led by William Wilberforce, a British evangelical. Two-thirds of the American abolitionist society in the the States were Christian ministers. In my area of higher education, every European university, every European university was started started under Christian principles. Here in the United States, one out of the first 123 universities started in America. Only one was not Christian. That was my alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania, started by Benjamin Franklin, not exactly a secular humanist. Christianity has made profound impacts in a variety of different things. Let's look at the teachings of Jesus Christ and see if there's anything about what he said that might give us a light on our path 
of living in a maybe a similar pagan barbaric culture. Uh, do you remember how Jesus was portrayed in, summer, in Sunday school? Uh, it's like he did miracles every day. It's just like that's all he did. He did miracles. He was always raising people from the dead, feeding people. You know, sick people were getting well. The reality is when you get older, you start reading the text, you realize that there was only about three dozen miracles listed in Scripture. And they really didn't have that big a prominence really in the life of Jesus. In fact, Jesus played down their prominence because every time he did them, he'd say, shh, don't tell anybody. Don't tell a soul. Miracles rarely produced faith, even in the Old Testament. So what's the purpose of the miracles? Aren't the miracles to show Jesus' divine power and that he's from God? The reality is there's literally no significance to any of the miracles except the resurrection. Because those people that he fed, four hours later, their stomach grumbled again and they were hungry. Those people that were sick, that were healed, they eventually got something else. Even poor Lazarus. <laughs> Lazarus raised from the dead only to die again. My, my youngest son, he did study abroad when he was at Harding. He called Lisa and I like, I don't know, it was, I don't know, four o'clock in the morning, our time. And, he, and we were like, what's wrong? He's like, I'm at what's believed Lazarus' second grave. It's like, you called to tell me that <laughs> at four o'clock? Well, then I started to think about it. Lazarus died twice. We all worry about our own death, and he got to do it twice. There is no lasting significance to any of the miracles except the resurrection. So what's the purpose? Let's think through a couple of them. That first miracle, the wedding feast when Jesus turned the water into grape juice. I'm sorry, it's just a shameless thing to say to see if anybody's awake here. We need a little halftime. Okay, turn the water into wine. It's the strangest of all the miracles, is it not? I mean, when they forecast that the Messiah, that messianic prophecy that Jesus is going to come, he's going to restore Israel, he gonna, he's going to you know, free the captives, he's going to make everything new. There's no mention of social faux pas in there. And yet, it's miracle. And was Jesus this opportunist that thought, oh, this is a grand stage. What an awkward circumstance. It's a wedding. They've run out of wine. What a great way to announce that I am from God. I am the chosen one. I am the Messiah. Is that what was really playing out here? I don't think so. I mean, the Jesus or was asked by his mother, and he said, no, this is not my time. And like all good mothers, she persisted, <laughs> and he did. I believe this was not about flexing divine power, but it was about compassion. 
John chapter 9, the whole chapter is devoted to the healing of the blind man. Is this again just another opportunity for Jesus to, to flex his divine power and say, I am from God? Or is it recognizing how the Lord thinks about those who are sick and disabled? And then we have that really intriguing encounter where he heals a leper. Dr. Paul Brand is a leprosy specialist. He said, leprosy does not hurt. There's no pain. There's no discomfort. And yet, there's tremendous suffering. Levitical law required uh, for lepers to be, live outside the walls of the city. And if you ever encountered them, you certainly wouldn't touch them. And in fact, you kept six feet away. It's our first instance of social distancing in Scripture. Mother Teresa worked for years in Calcutta and uh, was surrounded by leprous people. And she called leprosy the disease of being unwanted. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all use this really explosive sentence. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. The Lord of heaven, the one who spoke all creation into existence, breaks Levitical law and chooses to heal the leper by touch. I believe it's a signal that what's going on here is so much more important than just I am from the Lord and I've got more power than you. The raising of Lazarus. Probably the most compelling of all the miracles. And you get this great sense of his love for the people. And he weeps. He weeps over Lazarus, the one with the power to raise him from the dead. Something is happening here that's so much beyond divine power. So if there's no lasting significance to miracles and it's more than just divine, flexing his divine power and a rarely produced uh, faith, what's their purpose? I believe their purpose is about love, compassion in the ministry. There's another text that's somewhat provocative. John chapter 14, verses 11 through 14. And in that text, uh, Jesus is talking about the miracles. He said, believe at least in the evidence of the miracles. So I think he does recognize the fact that, yes, I have been performing miracles. This does show that I am from the Lord. But he, he makes the statement. He said, but greater works will you do. Greater works will you do. The recognition that what's more powerful than a miracle? It's love. It's mercy. It's compassion. That's what changes things. You know, the history of Churches of Christ uh, traces its roots in America back to uh, the Restoration Movement. And the leaders of the movement were attempting to restore a first century pattern. And, uh, but today, when the term restoration movement is used, it's code language. It's code language for what some might believe are first century worship practices. 
church governance or doctrine. I believe it's time for a new restoration movement. A new movement that includes a commitment to biblical teaching. But maybe we need a revolution to restore first century love, first century mercy. What if we start a revolution of compassion? What if we revive the apostolic teaching on generosity? What if we reawakened our commitment to run towards broken humanity? If the church is going to be relevant in this new millennium, we need to recognize our difference, to our calling to make a difference in the world. The church was launched in the midst of a barbaric, pagan, Roman culture. And this small little revolution was started by 12 teenagers. Most of the biblical scholars believe that the disciples, when they were called, were 18 to 21. So when you read the Gospels and hear thing, names like Peter, James, and John, you shouldn't think about me. You should think about that guy back there in the sound booth. Right? Raise your hand. Peter, James, and John look more like him than they look like me. And yet, convicted by the teachings of Jesus Christ, empowered by his example of what love and ministry and compassion look like, and indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, they changed the course of humanity. And I think that's a powerful message as we think about how do we make a difference? How does the church of God be relevant in this culture? And watch this generation walk out the doors. Maybe we need to walk out the doors with them. Maybe they're right. Maybe the, the calling of Christ is so benign that it doesn't capture anybody's imagination or attention anymore. But if we reawakened our call, reawakened our call to run towards the brokenness of humanity, we could join in the redemptive work. As I mentioned in class today, one of the words that I'm dropping from my vocabulary is this word that we've made up, stupid, post-Christian. Post-Christian? Is the Holy Trinity sitting around fist-bumping each other, saying, well, we had a good run, but it's over now? No. The kingdom of God is alive and well. And the kingdom of God is not diminished in any stretch. We have to join him in his redemptive work because he has equipped us with everything we need to propel the kingdom of God. You know, uh, there's a great story of Joshua and here they were on the eve of taking Jericho. And he's pre prepared the troops for a battle that they were really from on paper very ill-equipped to win. But Joshua knew that the Lord was with them. And so he made this unbelievable statement. Consecrate yourselves for the Lord will do amazing things among you. I believe 
in this collapsing culture that we find ourselves in. We have to go expectant that God is going to do something amazing with us. But the amazing things that he'll do with us will be well beyond the worship experiences that we're called to in this building. The amazing things are done on the streets of the city. We're going to sing a song, and I'm sure with a church like this that has wonderful shepherds, if you've got a need, uh, that you'll express that as we stand and sing.